Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with a roundup of a busy week on the From Poverty to Power blog. So Monday as usual, the uh, links I liked uh, roundup of the previous week's social media. Two things I'd pick out. One is a really great new uh, add-on to your Chrome, uh, uh, which is called Unpaywall, which enables you to immediately find the ungated version of any academic paper you're reading if it exists, which is a fantastic blow for open access. Uh, details on the blog if you want to uh, install it. Um, second, a very nice uh, little comparison by George Monbiot, the environmentalist, looking at how changing the words we use to describe things can help reframe the debate. Uh, just one example, he suggests using climate breakdown instead of climate change, because climate change sounds kind of neutral and dull. Climate breakdown is a much more accurate and powerful description of what we're talking about. So starting to think about language and framing, uh, and I thought that was a nice example. On Tuesday, I discussed what I think is AID's um, problem with assuming a state, that because AID focuses so much on nation states. It focuses on nation states in terms of who to give money to if you're a big donor like DFID or USAID or the World Bank, or you lobby the state if you're a, an activist or an influencing organization. Um, so what tends to happen is uh, if we're talking about places like fragile and conflict-affected states where the state is either part of the problem or is entirely absent, we sort of talk about that for a little bit, and then we just suddenly, when we talk about what to do, we kind of default back to assuming a state uh, so that we can talk about all our solutions and our spending and our policy priorities and all the rest of it, even when we're talking about incredibly predatory or um, uh, inadequate states. We still assume a state can, can be there to have the problem to the missing state, which is, in, which is when you think about it, completely ridiculous. Um, and the thing that provoked me to go on about this was a, a new ODI paper from the Overseas Development Institute called Financing the End of Extreme Poverty. They do some really good number crunching on the poverty numbers to show that poverty will be overwhelmingly in fragile and conflict-affected states over the next 10, 15 years, but donors are moving away from funding those places and funding more middle-income places. So the argument of the paper is that donors need to step up, um, but then it kind of assumes a state uh, in terms of how that money is going to be spent. However, Marcus Manuel from ODI did come back in, a, in an email exchange and gave some examples of successful programs in these messy places in Afghanistan, Liberia, and Yemen. So I think it's a really interesting question whether, you know, yes, you need the money. What else do you need? Uh, in order to get progress in those places. You probably have to redesign aid, redesign influencing, think about everything differently because the state is no longer your ally. On Wednesday, um, I had a bit of a rant. Uh, these are the things which usually um, get people worked up on the blog. And I had a rant about how academics write about aid. Because what I've noticed, because I'm you know, working at the LSE and circulating in, in, in um, some academic circles, is that you get a lot of quite ill-informed criticism of the aid business. It's portrayed as a neo-imperialist plot. Um, 
uh, it's you know a lot of people criticize A's based on things they saw or read 20 or 30 years ago and they don't seem to feel the need to update themselves at all now this sounds terribly defensive it sounds like I'm defending NGOs and aid against valid academic criticism and I hope I'm not doing that I think I'm just saying they need to apply a little bit more rigor to themselves um, when they talk about this anyway I had a rant about this and it got me thinking about this this weird phrase which you get in academia the literature what does the literature say? There is not a literature on this. And I've even found myself starting to say this, and I feel terribly scholarly and impressive when I do it. But actually, I think it probably sucks as a concept, because what, what the literature often consists of is a series of quite circular, self-feeding conversations between people who, who see the world largely the same way. So what you do is you publish a paper uh, behind a paywall in an academic journal about aid. That paper is based largely on other papers written behind paywalls by other academics about aid. And some of them have actually not made any attempt to talk to practitioners, to read anything practitioners write, because they're not peer-reviewed journals, so they don't qualify as the literature. So you get this real bubble of conversation. And as a, you know, once you go through two or three iterations of this, the link to what I consider to be my real world gets more and more tenuous. So I think there's a real problem about this idea of the literature and the literature being based on peer-reviewed journals only. So I had a rant about that and it all kicked off. Um, you know, uh, the practitioner said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The academic said, how can you be so crude? How can you make these sweeping generalizations? There's lots of really good writing about aid, um, really well, you know, well-evidenced impressive and you're just being defensive and then interestingly there were a group of people in the middle perhaps that awful word word pracademics people who were working in aid agencies or and are now doing masters or phds or have entered academia they were the ones who were most positive about the blog which was interesting they said yes this resonates I always felt when I was doing my master's or my PhD that all my practical experience was regarded as worthless it was not real what's real is the literature Anyway, um, it all kicked off. Uh, I clearly was far too crude and I was making these sweeping generalizations and winding people up. So um, I then came back on Friday to try and summarize the conversation. Um, there were about 30 really good comments. There was an enormous discussion on Twitter. Um, and I guess some of the most useful things I learned from this conversation. One is you have to think about the literature in lots of different ways. There's, there is no one, the literature. One way is to think about it is that there is um, a lot of different literatures. They don't always talk to each other. They're often based by discipline. Pablo Yanguas had a fantastic post in response to my post on his blog um, saying, well, you've got to think about the literature in terms of three overlapping blobs, methodological rigor, the ones which prioritize theoretical significance and the ones which prioritize practical relevance. Now, obviously, in theory, everybody wants to be in that sweet spot in the middle of the three blobs. In practice, that is very rare. So he, he comes up with a very nice typology of what happens when you have just two of those blobs or one of those blobs. And I think that was really uh, a step forward, I think. I also think that... Um, the people who were getting upset were not the people I was talking about. There's a kind of inner circle of serious aid scholars who are often you know, following particular aid projects, who spend time talking to aid practitioners and reading the documents, and, uh, and they're not the problem because I think they are incredibly useful. They make very good criticisms. We learn a lot from them. But there's this outer ring 
of people who are talking about development and are very influential over, the, over how students, for example, form their views about the world, but they're not actually working on aid. They're working on other stuff, on government or on governance, public policy, uh, health, whatever it is. But in passing, they issue these extraordinary uh, uh, you know, commentaries about aid based on very, very little. And I guess I'm talking about that outer ring more than I am about the inner circle of people who are all mortally offended by my post. Anyway, um, in between the post and the summary of the comments, I, I did a, a post on Thursday based on a social protection seminar, a seminar about social protection, all these different ways to try and cushion poor people from the, the sort of vagaries of life, which involved the IMF and uh, economists from the LSE. It was really fascinating. It was fascinating both because I learned just how quickly social protection numbers are rising. Uh, they've gone up by about a factor of, I think, nine over the last, uh, in the course of this decade uh, in developing, in, in lower middle income countries. Uh, but also, what happens in those uh, events is sometimes it just gets into such a level of detail that I kind of slightly step back. And then you watch some really interesting different meta dances happening where paradigms are being questioned, paradigms are you know, uh, uh, or ignored or uh, you know, deeper things are going on. And it was particularly interesting when uh, one of the LSE economists, Ian Goff, um, said, look, we've got to think about climate change and social protection, and that includes thinking about a post-growth form of economics. And it was a sort of tumbleweed moment. No one commented on it. No one shouted. No one laughed. And no one referred to it again for the rest of the day. And it was just interesting watching how some comments are immediately absorbed into the conversation and others just bounce off. And I'm really interested in this, how, this whole question of how paradigms are renewed and questioned. Um, I also had a little exchange with um, uh, someone from the World Development Report group for the WDR19. This is the current World Development Report, which is on the future of work, which was incredibly optimistic and saying, look, basically, you don't need to worry about uh, artificial intelligence, robotics. You know, there have always been these scares, these fears that the robots are going to take our jobs and uh, they've always been misplaced. So chill. It's going to be fine. And the, 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 the more sort of substantial evidence that backs that up, I accept, is um, that there's no sign of mass unemployment. There's no sign of a sudden surge in productivity, which is what you'd expect if um, there were suddenly loads of robots doing the jobs and, and not people. But on the other hand, I just, I just worry that the past is not a guide to the future, that everybody who does a low-skilled job, you know, something like driving or uh, making stuff is going to be out of work. And what are they all going to do? So my question to, to the WDR guy was just, well, if you did a scenario in which you were wrong, what would your policy solutions look like? And he was basically incapable of even thinking about it, which was kind of interesting. So uh, there was an interesting sort of to and fro on that. Anyway, that was my week. Very busy week. Thanks to everybody who commented, who tweeted, who got involved. Uh, these are the kind of weeks when I really enjoy doing the blog. And let's hope we have lots more like it.